محمدًا رسول الله ويقيدي أدنو إليه ساجدًا بجبيني اقبل صلاتي الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين أما بعد so we now resume where we had left off from before our Eid break and that is the Battle of Khayba and we took a little bit of a break with the story of Zainab bin Tijah so let us now resume from the Battle of Khayba and I already mentioned that the Muhajirun from Habasha had arrived and met the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. Uh, the very day that he conquered Khaybar, correct? Remember that, right? Yes. And what did the Prophet say to Ja'far? Quickly, what did he say to Ja'far when he saw him? The blessed day, you know, which one? No, not happy. What makes happy, him happy? What makes me happier? I don't know. Seeing yeah. you or the conquest of Khaybar, right? I don't know which of the two is making me happier today, seeing you or the conquest of Khaybar. Now, with this group that came from Habasha, uh, it is most likely uh, that with this group arrived one of the wives of the Prophet and that is Umm Habiba, Ramla binti Abi Sufyan. Umm Habiba was the daughter of Abu Sufyan. Her name is Ramla, who was her kunyas Habiba. She had a daughter uh, obviously named Habiba. And her husband Ubaidullah bin Jahsh was one of the very, very few Sahaba who was a Sahabi, then he became a Murtad. We can count these people on the fingers of one hand, maybe even he's the only one, or there might have been two or three more in the entire seerah. And the most famous of them is Ubaidullah bin Jahsh. So he's not actually a Sahabi. He used to be, then he became Murtad. Once you become Murtad, you're not a Sahabi anymore. So Ubaidullah bin Jahsh, obviously was the husband of uh, Ramla. He was the father of Habiba, so he's Abu Habiba. So Umm Habiba was his wife. And he was a Christian before converting to Islam. And he was one of the four people, if you remember the story way back in the beginning of the Meccan Sirah, way back in the beginning there were four people that became Hunafa. Of them is Zayd ibn Amr ibn Rufayn. This is one of those four, Ubaidullah ibn Jahsh. So he's pretty old in age. And he had become a Christian. Then when the Prophet began preaching, he converted to Islam. Then he emigrated to Abyssinia. Then when he saw the land of Christianity, he went back to being a Christian. And the story of her, Umm Habiba and him is... Inshallah, we'll be discussed when we talk about Umm Habiba at the end of the seerah. So when he became Murtad, Umm Habiba left him and he died very shortly. He died a Murtad uh, in Habasha, he was buried there. So Umm Habiba is all alone in Abyssinia, she has nobody to take care of her. So our Prophet sent a proposal to her new wali. And her new wali was none other than Najashi himself, the emperor himself. Because he was a Muslim and he is the leader and her father is not a Muslim, so her, who is the wali then? So the leader becomes the wali of the one who doesn't have a wali, right? So the Prophet sent a khitbah, a proposal, to her through Najashi. So Najashi took on becoming her wali, and Najashi was happy uh, that uh, he was very excited that uh, the Prophet sent the proposal to her, and in fact he gifted her the entire mahar amount. And he held a feast and a walima, so he gave the mahr on his behalf. The Prophet didn't ask him. He just gifted the Prophet on the mahr, and he gifted uh, Umm Habiba with a lot of lavish gifts as the mahr on behalf of the Prophet And the wisdom of this marriage is obvious. It is enough that she's the daughter of Abu Sufyan. End of story. Like her father is the leader of the Quraysh. Her father is the leader of Kufr. 
there is no better thing to be done right now than that the Prophet marries Ramla binti Abi uh, Sufyan. And a uh, quick reminder, so uh, we talked about uh, Zainab last, uh, last class, and now we talk about uh, uh, Ramla or Umm Habiba. So quickly, the wives of the Prophet we need to catch up to them, because today will be a lot of discussion about yet another uh, marriage of the Prophet So number one is obviously Khadija. Number two? No. Number two? No. Sauda. Number two, Sauda. Number three? Aisha. Number four? Hafsa. Number five, Zainab bint Jahsh, uh, sorry, not Zainab, Zainab bint Khuzayma. We talked about her very quickly, she passed away. She was the one, few months, she was married to the process. Number five is Zainab bint Khuzayma. Number six, we talked about her as well many halakhas ago. Umm Salama. Umm Salama. Number seven, Juwaidiya. Juwaidiya was from which tribe? No, the Bad al The one that when he married her, all of her tribes were free. This is Juwaidiyah. That's number uh, seven. Then number eight was Zainab bint Jahsh. And we talked about her in the last halaqa. Then uh, number nine is Umm Habiba Ramla bint uh, Abi Sufyan. Uh, and today we'll talk about uh, number ten in this order. Obviously two of them have passed away. So this is number eight of the living wives and then two have passed away. And before we get there, there is one uh, somewhat controversial incident uh, dealing with uh, post Khaybar, what happened right after the conquest of Khaybar, and this is with regards to one of the Yahudi. His name was uh, Sa'ya, and Sa'ya was the uh, uncle, or in one report, the brother of Huyay ibn Akhtab, who was the leader of the Jews of Banu Nadir. Now, pause here. Banu Nadir have been exiled. Banu Nadir went to Khaybar. The Banu Nadir now uh, are uh, instigating Ahzab. The Banu Nadir are doing a lot of damage. So. Huyay is one of those that is the leaders of the Banu Nadir. And Huyay was killed in the very beginning of the Battle of Khaybar. So the Prophet asked his brother or his uncle, uh, whose name was Sa'ya, that where is the gold of Huyay? Huyay had left Medina with a lot of gold. Now remember the Banu Nadir, they were allowed to leave with anything they could carry. And remember they even took their doors of their houses, remember that. They took the doors of their houses, this is the Banu Nadir. So, he said, where is all of that gold? Why is he asking for the gold? Because of the conditions of Khaybar, from what we mentioned last time, of the conditions from Khaybar, was that the, 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 the tribes of Khaybar would hand over all of the gold and silver, and weapons and armor. And they'd be allowed to keep their houses and lands for the time being. Remember that was the agreement, right? That instead of exiling you, as we had exiled the other tribes, they were the ones that said, let us remain and we'll take care of the land and we'll give you 50%. Half of the produce we'll give you. So the Prophet said, we will agree to this with a number of conditions of them that you hand over the gold and silver and you hand over the weapons and the armor. And you will not hide any of this or else the treaty will be null and void. So he asks Sa'ya, where is this uh, gold of Huyay? Because Huyay had... He was the leader of the Banu Ali. He had a lot of gold. He had treasure chests of gold. So, uh, Sa'iya said, it's all been finished. The wars and the spending, all of it has been finished. And the Prophet said, It's only been a recent time when he left Medina. 
and the money is too much to have been spent in such a short period of time. Clearly you're lying. But he insisted, he insisted, he insisted. Now, this is where the controversial incident happens, and that is the books of Hadith and the books of Sirah mentioned that when uh, Sa'iya insisted of, I have no idea, I have no clue, so the Prophet handed him over to Zubair and he said, extract the information from him. So Zubair did whatever means were necessary to get the information from him. Right? Which obviously means beating up or, you know, uh, roughing him up and whatnot. Now obviously this is used as a, uh, something in our times to say that uh, the Prophet is uh, condoning torture, let's say, or something like this, right? So this is the thing that is being used by uh, non-Muslims to say, look, the Prophet is using torture on a prisoner of war, on a POW. And as you know me, I am not an apologetic and... Uh, I call a spade a spade, and the fact of the matter is, whatever the process and did, whatever you want to call it, this was the norm of the time, and Huyay was lying, and they knew he was lying, and if not Huyay, sorry, Sa'ya, Huyay is dead. Sa'ya is lying, and they knew he was lying, and guess what? Within a while, Sa'ya immediately handed up information, he said, oh, you know, I think I saw him going to such and such a valley, he might have gone there. Like, you know, he didn't want to really say, I knew. So he said, I think I saw him going to such, such and such a valley. He might have gone in that direction. So they went to that valley and they found, you know, rough dirt that had been dug up. They, that was where all of the gold had been hidden. So the process and realized that he's lying and he got this information from him. Now, uh, these were a time when the Geneva, Geneva Conventions have not been signed or agreed. And... Yeah, and the fact of the matter is that was the norm of the time, that was what people did, all civilizations did it. And I think it is uh, rather idiosyncratic for us to uh, look at the seerah in light of Geneva Conventions or whatnot. That's something, in modern countries, Muslim or non-Muslim, whoever signs up, they will agree. That's what our Sharia says, right? And if any country signs up to these conventions or accords, then we must live up to it. But to backtrack and to say, well, why didn't this civilization live up, live up to that treaty. I honestly think there's no point even getting down this. This was something completely the Norman understood. And our Prophet Sallallahu did not do anything that other peoples did not do. And in the end, uh, you know, Sa'ya was living and he went on living his life. He was just roughed up and whatnot. And whatever happened, whatever you want to call it, no doubt he was lying and he knew the consequences. And he got those consequences, and the information was extracted uh, from him. So, uh, again, I don't see the point in, in sugarcoating it. It is what it is. Uh, the next issue that happened in the uh, post-battle of Khaybar uh, is the marriage of the Prophet with Safiyyah. Safiyyah binti Huyay ibn Akhtab. The same one whose gold went missing. Huyay ibn Akhtab. The same one who is the leader of the Banu Nadir. So, Safiyyah was his daughter. And Safiya, she tells us her own story in many a hadith. Uh, she tells us that when the Prophet emigrated to Medina, I was a young girl, I was the favorite of my father and my uncle, whose name was Yasir. So her father is Huyay and her uncle is Yasir. And she said that I was the favorite and every day I would come outside when they came back from the fields rejoicing and happy and they would play with me and talk with me. One day, she was probably around 10 years old or something when this incident happened, they came back and they were very depressed and very agitated. And I didn't understand what had happened, but that was the day the Prophet had arrived. And they had gone to see him. And I went up to them yelling and running like 
little girls do, and they just completely ignored me. And I saw the two of them with their shoulders dragging, like completely depressed. And my uncle, Yasir, asked my father, Huyay, Ahu Ahu, is he the one? Ahu Ahu, is he the one? And Huyay said, Yes, by the Lord of Musa, he is the one. He is the one. They saw all of the signs. So his uncle said, what are you going to do? What are we going to do? So he said, we will oppose him as long as he lives. We will oppose him as long as he lives. Right. So this is Huyay. And uh, when the Banu Nadir were exiled, so Safiya is exiled with them, and Safiya then grows up in uh, Khaybar, and she gets married to somebody in uh, Khaybar, so she is now married, and she's probably around... Uh, if she was 10 at that time, so Khaybar took place in the 7th year, so 17, 18 years old now, right? So she's married and she's now 17, 18 years old. She doesn't have any uh, children. And uh, in the ba- battle of Khaybar, the Banu Nadir were at the forefront of the, of the attack because obviously they felt more angry than the people of Khaybar because they're the Banu Nadir. They've been exiled from Medina. So more of the Banu Nadir died than the people who lived in Khaybar originally. And therefore, Huyay was killed in the battle of Khaybar. Right? We already know Huyay was killed because of the gold story. Her brother was killed, Safiya's brother. And her husband was killed as well. All are killed in this entire 20 days ordeal. Right? So she's left an orphan and a widow. Okay? And when the battle of Khaybar finishes, the Banu Nadir... Now, the Banu Nadir were, their properties and their peoples were confiscated, unlike the people of Khaybar who were allowed to live. Remember, the people of Khaybar, they got off by giving half of their wealth. Right? The Banu Nadir, they were taken as captives and they were taken as uh, Ghanima. And therefore, Safiya was distributed along with everybody else. And she fell in the lot of, she fell in the lot of Dihya al-Kalbi. Uh, the famous Sahabi whom when Jibreel would come to it, look like Dihya al-Kalbi. But many people came to the Prophet suggesting that she was too good for Dihya. That she should not be in the lot of Dihya. After all, she's the daughter of uh, Huyay. And also, it is said that uh, she was a very beautiful young lady as well. And so a number of Sahaba said that, Ya Rasulullah, you should take her and not leave her for uh, Dihya. And so the Prophet ransomed her or paid her price uh, from Dihya, which was a large amount because uh, in those days, obviously, uh, it will be a lot of money to purchase and buy a slave. So uh, he paid her the, the price that was norm, the normal price. And uh, he then took Safiya. Now, when he took Safiya, people did not know, is he taking her as a jariya, as a slave concubine, or as a wife? Because both are allowed. And she is a slave. So by purchasing her from Dihya, so she becomes now the concubine of the Prophet ﷺ. So they didn't know, is she a concubine or is she a wife? So they wanted to see how the Prophet would treat her. When it was time to leave Khaybar, to exit from Khaybar, uh, and he had not yet consummated the marriage, so he's leaving with her. He brought her to the camel and he put the camel down. Now the camel itself is a huge animal. The lump will be over here if it's on the ground as most of you who've seen camels know. So even a young lady is not going to get onto the camel like this. So what did he do? And this is a very 
romantic, if you like, incident in the uh, seerah of the Prophet he knelt down on one foot, so one foot is on the ground, and on with the other foot, he put his thigh on, and he bent his knee, right? So he made his thigh like a stepping ladder for Safiya, right? So he, put, he bent down, and one knee is on the ground, and the other foot is on the ground, and the knee is in the air, you understand? Right? And so the thigh is now a stepping stone, right? For Safiya to get onto, to get onto the camel. And notice here Safiya's intelligence, and she was a very intelligent uh, lady, that she did not want to put her shoe or her foot onto the Prophet ﷺ. So what did she do? She used her knee on the thigh of the Prophet ﷺ, and she put her one knee on that thigh and then she then jumped onto the camel so that her foot did not come on top of the Prophet ﷺ. And he then put her on the camel and he then took his cloak and he covered her with the cloak so that she is now completely covered. And when the Sahaba saw this, they realized what? She's a wife. Because this type of hijab is only for the wives of the Prophet not for the jawari, not for the concubines, right? This type of hijab, that no one will see you, even your entire body. And so the entire ride, she is behind the Prophet and the cloak is on top of her, and she's just covering it. Uh, now, she doesn't realize what this signifies, because she doesn't know Islamic law, right? So she does not realize what this uh, signifies. And the first stop that happened, uh, the Prophet wanted to spend the night with her, but she says no. She refuses. So, the Prophet leaves her be. They keep on going until they are one night away from Medina. They're one night away, and then she says, tonight, okay. So the next night she agrees. So the Prophet told Umm Sulaim, who is the mother of Anas and Imadi, to get her ready. And so uh, Umm Sulaim narrates that, I took two pieces of cloth and I put them between trees so that we can use this as a beauty salon, right? <laughs> that she has to now make her look beautiful. And the women had whatever they could get and she complains, this is from the Ibn Sa'as Tabaqat, she complains, we didn't have any of the jewelry and any of the decorations. You know, every culture has things you do on the wedding night. And she's agitated that I don't have any of this stuff, but whatever we had, we made do with it, right? We didn't even have perfume, she said. Because you're not going to take your perfume when you're going... In those days, they didn't have... Modern ladies have their own uh, vanity baskets. They didn't have any vanity baskets back then. So, uh, they didn't have any of this. See, we didn't even have perfume. But whatever we had, we used it to beautify her and whatnot. And then when we finished, she said, we smelt a perfume more fragrant than any other perfume we had smelt. And Allah يعني, blessed her in this regard, right? And we then prepared her for the Prophet And she herself narrates certain incidents that took place on this very night. Uh, she said that when the Prophet entered in upon her, uh, a part of the conversation that he had, he said to her, something very harsh, but there's a wisdom in this. He said to her, your father, Huyay, was the most open of the Yahud in their animosity against me. Your father was the most open of the Yahud in their animosity against me until Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala caused his death. Now that's a very harsh thing to say, right? 
But there is a wisdom behind this, and the wisdom is to see her reaction, to see her iman or kufr, to see her loyalty or disloyalty. You see the Prophet and this is an assumption, he is thinking, should I take her as a wife or not? And he cannot take her as a wife if she has hatred, if she has vengeance in her mind, if she has retaliation, correct? So he tells her something very provocative, which is the truth. Your father was one of my worst enemies. And her response was, Ya Rasulullah, doesn't Allah say in the Quran, if my father was an enemy, that doesn't mean I will be an enemy. No soul shall take the burden of the other. So when the Prophet saw this, and this was what he wanted to see, right? He said to her, you have a choice now. Choose yourself. If you accept Islam, I shall keep you for me. Because she's still a Yahudiya. And if you remain in your faith, then perhaps I shall free you and you can return to your people. Now once again, she's being given a choice. And the choice seems to be very bitter, to be honest. You remain a slave with me if you're a Muslim. Because that's what the wording says. Because what is the other wording? If you, if you remain a Yahudiya, I shall free you and you can return to your people. And again, this is clearly a test, right? Now the Sahaba understand that she's a wife because of that, but she has no idea. She literally thinks she's a slave. So the Prophet said, if you accept Islam, you shall remain with me. And that's absolutely valid. She didn't realize remain with me as a wife. She thought remain with me as a slave. And if you want to remain in your religion, then perhaps I shall free you and you can go back to your people. And the perhaps here is like meaning I will do that, okay? And this is another test, that if she is not a real Muslimah, why would she want to remain with the Prophet She will want freedom and go back to the Khaybar, go back to any other group of Yahud that will take her, right? Because realize that now she is all alone in a new culture, a new civilization, a new environment. And she replied, Ya Rasulullah, I was already inclined towards Islam even before you offered it to me. And I have already believed in you even before you asked me to convert. In other words, she's already accepted Islam in her heart and I have no desire to remain in my faith. Also, she said, I have no family. My father and brother are no more. And notice in her wisdom and precision, she does not mention husband because it's awkward. Look at her, her, her intelligence, right? My father and brother are no more. Let's just ignore the ex-husband, okay? Because he's also dead. He was also killed in the battle. My father and brother are no more, and you have asked me to choose between kufr and Islam. And she said, Allah and His Messenger are more beloved to me than being free and going back to my people. Now this is clear iman. This is like Zayd ibn Harith when he said, I'd rather remain here than go back free man to my people, right? So when she passes the test, and just think over here, how amazing this Iman is. Wallahi, I think it is true to say that never in the history of humanity can we find such an example where a conqueror comes and conquers a group. And this lady whom he has conquered, her family, her tribe, her wealth, 
her father, her brother, her husband have all been killed by the conquering nation, right? And instead of feeling animosity, hatred, vengeance, rather, she has converted to the conqueror's faith and will choose to be a slave under him rather than a free lady with her own people. Now you tell me, what does that show? It shows us Safiya had a pure heart and Islam is a true religion. That's really what it shows us. Safiya had a pure heart and Islam is a true religion and that is why when Safiya saw the truth, what did she see? We don't know. But she's been with the army for at least a week by now as a prisoner, right? And then as a wife of the Prophet she's been with him two, three nights and now is the first night now. So she's riding on the camel for sure. There would have been some conversations taking place. For sure, the process of him is, after he showed her this romantic gesture, for sure, there's good talk going on as well. And her heart has now been completely taken in. And she knows that this man is a messenger of Allah. So she converts so much that she completely ignores and forgets and forgives her father, her brother, and her husband's demise. And she becomes a loyal Muslima who wants to remain as a slave rather than be a free girl and return to her uh, tribe and whatnot. And so because of this, the Prophet ﷺ freed her right then and there and married her. Because technically she was still a slave. Because when you free somebody, you have to say you free somebody. And uh, when the Prophet saw her for the first time, he saw a big cut and bruise on her face. So he said, what is this? Where did this come from? So she said, my husband Kinana gave this to me. It's a fresh bruise. My husband Kinana gave this to me. I saw a dream last week, basically. I saw a dream that the moon had risen up from Yathrib and it had gone high up and then dropped right into my lap. So I told my husband about this and he smacked me right across the face, punched me and said, do you expect that the king of the Arabs is going to marry you? You want to be with the king of the Arabs? He called the process of a king, right? So he interpreted the dream, which is the correct interpretation, that the moon is the Prophet coming from Yathrib, and that she will be married to the Prophet So she said, as soon as he had hit me, I started my menses right then on that day, and he never approached me until he died. So subhanAllah, Allah Azza wa took care of that issue as well. Right? That uh, the last thing that he did was actually hit her and smack her across the face. And uh, then uh, left her in this state and she was in the menses until she uh, was pure and she was a widow in that state. Her husband had already uh, died. So she clearly had a premonition from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that the Prophet sallallahu would become her uh, husband. And this also made it easier for her, no doubt, to accept Islam. Allah is preparing the way for her to accept Islam. And it is narrated that the Prophet asked her why she had refused the first night to spend with him. Why now that we're you know, farther away and closer to Medina? And she said, I was scared of the Yahud perhaps retaliating when we were close by. So I wanted to get farther away, closer to Medina, so that I'm not worried about retaliation. And this increased the love that the Prophet ﷺ had uh, for her. So you clearly see her iman and her intelligence. And the Prophet ﷺ freed her and he made her mahar, her freedom. And from this, the fuqaha have basically said that of the Islamic principles, which is not really relevant in our times because we don't have uh, the issue of uh, um, uh, iman and slaves. But if a person wants to marry his slave, 
There is no need for a contract, for two witnesses, for a wali. There is no need even for a mahar. Because the mahar will be her freedom. She becomes a free lady, that is her mahar. And her wali is her master. And there is no need for witnesses in this case. So, marrying one's own concubine is something that all you need to do is say, I have married you. End of story. And that is what the Prophet did. He married Safiya and he made her mahar her freedom. He made her mahar her freedom. And so this was where the Prophet uh, consummated the marriage. The next morning he comes out of the tent and he finds in the distance Abu Ayyub al-Ansari with his sword in his hand standing. <laughs> he says, Allahu Akbar, what is going on? And Abu Ayyub says, Ya Rasulullah, this young lady has just lost her father and her brother and her husband. And I was not, I didn't feel safe leaving her alone with you, so I was waiting there with the sword just in case you needed it. Voluntarily, the whole night, he's there with the sword. And the Prophet laughed because, subhanAllah, she is now a convert and she believes in the Messenger, she loves the Prophet and Abu Ayyub is thinking that, astaghfirullah, she's going to do something you know, bad to the Prophet So the Prophet laughed and he made dua for Abu Ayyub al-Ansari and he then said to the people, whoever has any food, let him bring it. This is going to be the wali manah. And so the people brought whatever they had. Some people had dates, some people had a little bit of, of uh, solidified butter, some people had some barley. And so they all mixed it up and they made a very simple rudimentary type of uh, food. It was called al-hils. And al-hils is basically a mixture of date and a little bit of butter and a little bit of barley. You just mix it up and you get some type of, uh, you know, uh, what were you going to call it? Their equivalent of a cake, something like this, right? That's really what it was. And that was the walima of the Prophet ﷺ with uh, Safiya. And uh, another very small incident occurred, and it's pretty small, but it's actually very interesting, very interesting. And that is that when he is coming back with Safiya, and she is on the camel of the Prophet ﷺ, so when the Sahaba saw the walls of Medina, it was their custom, and it was the custom of really all of us when we see Memphis finally after 10 hours of driving, right? What happens? Feel good, but then you speed up just a little bit, right? So when the Sahaba saw the walls of the city, so they began beating their camels just like a little bit extra, and the Prophet joined them in this. Now, somehow, this is so interesting, the camel of the Prophet fell over and tripped. Perhaps on another time, we don't know the details, right? So, both he and Safiya were flung from his camel, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Now, this is very dangerous. How many deaths have occurred by people falling from an animal, especially the camel, right? Even in the seerah, we find a number of sahaba that their camel just fell back and they died because of that, right? So, both the Prophet and Safiya are hurled from the camel and they fall down on the ground and when the Sahaba saw this all of them turned away. Why? Because to give her privacy. All of them turned away. None of them is daring to look and, 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 and say anything. Uh, and it is said that uh, Abu Talha, the stepfather of Anas ibn Malik was the only one who cried out are you all right, Ya Rasulullah? The rest are just too shy. Like, what do we do? It's like a moment of great awkwardness, right? 
And he was the only one that said, uh, Are you alright, Ya Rasulullah? And the Prophet said, Ma ana yani I have not, which is, I'm okay, I'm not hurt. Exactly, literally, they translate, I'm not hurt, right? And he stood up immediately. Once again, he took off his cloak and he covered up Safiya. And he then put her back on the camel and they went back to Medina. Now, uh, this incident, I think it's so significant simply because if Allah had willed, the camel of the Prophet would not have tripped. If Allah had willed, the camel of the Prophet would not have acted like any other camel acts. But it is the will of Allah as well to show us that our Prophet is just as human as every other person in his humanity. Yes, he is Rasulullah. Yes, he is Khatam al Anbiya al But he eats, he drinks, his camel trips like everybody else, right? Nothing, there's nothing divine about him or his camel. And just like other people's camel trips, his camel will also uh, trip. Now, just a few things about Safiya then, now that we mentioned her, that Safiya was one of those wives that uh, the Prophet uh, had an immense love for her, like he did for all of his wives. Uh, but the other wives were somewhat jealous of her and she didn't have much support amongst them. Otherwise, the wives of the Prophet were divided into two camps. Uh, Zainab's camp and Aisha's camp, right? And uh, Safiya really seemed to be in neither of them because she really didn't have family. And so the Prophet really felt this more and perhaps that was what brought him more sympathy for her. Uh, it is said that when Safiya came to Medina, all of the wives of the Prophet rushed to go see her. This is now their competition, right? They rushed to go see her and Zainab remarked to Juwaidiyah, Bint al-Hadith, that Ya Bint al-Haditha, I think this one is going to cause trouble. I think this one will take the process away from us. Right? So she's feeling now jealous. And this shows us that uh, clearly yani she had uh, beauty and iman and taqwa that they were feeling threatened. And uh, Juwaiya tried to minimize this and said, don't worry, she is from a group, meaning the Yahud, uh, that they are rarely lucky with their husbands. <laughs> it's a very, if you like, stereotypical response, that a bit of a smearing, that they always have divorces, don't worry. Okay? Her group is a group that doesn't really get along that much with their husbands. Okay? So she's trying to console her by saying, they don't know how to treat their husbands, don't worry, we'll be fine with that. But in fact, that didn't happen. What she was hoping for didn't happen. And in fact, uh, the Prophet Sallallahu uh, and of course all of his wives and wallahi this shows us the, the true nature of the process of that no doubt his wives were jealous of one another but each wife felt special with him and this is the reality of really this shows us what a man he was what a gentleman and what a man he was that no doubt the wives are jealous of each other but each wife is thinking that yes I am so special and I am this and I am that and each one has these stories that indicate this special relationship so once the Prophet visited Safiya and she was crying. And he said, what is the matter? She said, Hafsa said about me that I am uh, bint al-Yahudiyya. You know, the, you understand, you know, just a smear, that I am this, you know. And so I'm crying, like this is an, an insult, like you're smearing. And so the Prophet said, why didn't you defend yourself? She said, how? He said, you should have said that your father was a prophet, meaning Harun. She's a descendant of Harun. And your uncle was a prophet, meaning Musa. And you're married to a prophet. What do they have over you? Right? Your father's a prophet, your uncle's a prophet, you're married to a prophet. You should have defended yourself. 
And uh, again, to show you the love that the Prophet had for Safiya, that it is narrated that on Hajjat al uh, her camel fell ill. Safiya's camel fell ill, fell sick, so she couldn't ride the camel. And Zainab binti uh, Jahsh, and Zainab was wealthier, and Zainab is coming from a more prestigious family, and she is the cousin of the Prophet. Zainab binti Jahsh had some extra camels that she's going to sacrifice as Hajj. So the Prophet said to Zainab, why don't you lend her one of your camels? She's going for Hajj. And she scorned this, because again, there is mutual jealousy. And Wallahi, this shows us, subhanAllah, that even the best of the best, it's possible to have these types of any human politics. You can't get out of it. You can't. Even the Sahaba, you cannot get out of these things. Even Abu Bakr and Umar, sometimes they have a bit of an argument. Even though they're the best of friends, but hey, even the best of friends, they have a little bit of back and forth. So, she said, what? Me? Like, co-wife. I mean, you want me, my camel, to the Yahudiya? No way. Once again, she smeared her. Now, she's not a Yahudiya anymore. She's a Muslim, right? But again, this is a smear. And the Prophet got so irritated with Zainab. Now, Zainab, we just saw last week, uh, in our last halaqah, that Zainab Nora was also very special. And the Prophet did love her with a special love. But, when she acted in this way, that she refused to share a spare camel, so the Prophet got so angry at this, that as a punishment for Zainab, he boycotted her for a period of time. That you, you have a spare camel, we're going for Hajj, and you're not going to give it to uh, Safiya, and you smear her on top of that. So he boycotted her until she calmed down and she realized she made a very big error and a big mistake. And then the Prophet after a few weeks, uh, when they returned from Hajj basically. So for the whole Hajj, she was being boycotted because of this incident. Uh, that when they returned for Hajj, then the Prophet uh, came to her and gifted her an expensive gift. We're talking about Zainab, and made up with her then after this, right? Uh, another incident that is narrated was that when the Prophet was on his deathbed in the house of Aisha, all of the wives had come to visit him. Now, they don't realize he's about to die, remember. They, well, well, we'll get there when we get there, but they don't know he's about to die. And he is suffering severe pain, severe uh, fever, he's tossing and turning, and uh, you can tell the agony on his face, and Safiya begins to cry. Safiya begins to cry. And she says, Ya Rasulullah, how I wish I could take your fever and burden on me, so you don't have to be in this fever and burden. How I wish I could take it on me. Now, she's the first wife to say this, all the other wives feel <laughs> jealous and threatened, so they begin winking and, you know, things here and there, like, yeah, right, yeah, I mean, whatever it was, we don't know. It's the adab of the wives, they don't tell us these sordid details, right? We don't know exactly what was said. But they, sarcastic, mock and whatnot, and so the Prophet in his sickness, in his fever, he said to the other wives, go do madmada, and he will do and do madmada. He said, why? He said, because you have made fun of Safiya, you have mocked Safiya, and wallahi, she has spoken the truth, she would want to take on my fever and pain. And you're mocking her for this, that she's just saying this to get him in. He didn't say all these words, but she's saying, wallahi, she has spoken the truth. And basically, you have lied against her. Right? So go do wudu and do madmada because I will forgive your uh, sin of this. Now, again, look at, subhanAllah, the love that Safiya has for the one who's conquered her, for the one whose army has caused her tribe what it has caused, and the one whose army has basically gotten rid of her father and brother and ex-husband, all of this is now gone. Now, subhanAllah, at the time of the death of the Prophet she is crying, she's wailing, she's saying, I wish I could take on the pain that you have. What love? Where does it come from? You tell me in history, 
Where have we had this type of change? You would expect such a lady to be full of anger, bitterness, anguish, revenge. You would expect such a lady to want to kill this very person that she's married to. In any other circumstance. But this is Islam. This is Rasulullah. This is Iman. Complete 180 degree turn. It's unbelievable. Wallahi, you just think about it. And yet here we have Safiya as a very beautiful example of what happens when Iman enters the heart of uh, a person. And she lived a relatively long life. She was one of the last of the wives of the Prophet to die. And she died in the year 52 Hijrah. 52. That's very long. She saw all of these things. She also wanted to help Uthman when he was under siege. So a lot of things I might mention about her. And she died in the time of uh, Muawiyah. So this is the story of Safiya. And so she got married at this point in the incident of Khaybar. Uh, one more thing about Khaybar, we're talking about post-Khaybar, what happens post-Khaybar. Another interesting incident that takes place uh, post-Khaybar is the arrival of the single most important narrator of hadith in the history of Islam, and that is Abu Hurairah. Abu Hurairah, right? Abu Hurairah is number one in terms of quantity of hadith. Nobody even comes close to him. And perhaps one day we'll have a lecture why that is the case, even though he joined the Prophet in the seventh year of the Hijrah. So he only accompanied the Prophet for three full years, three years in a month, right? He was with the Prophet for three years, and yet his number of hadith outshines every single other Sahabi, without any exception. Number one is Abu Hurairah, number one, right? And this is when he arrived. He had come from Yemen, he's a Dawsi. His name is Abdurrahman ibn Sakhar, from the tribe of Adaus. He's a Dawsi, so he's a Yemeni. And he's, uh, he's decided to make hijrah to Medina, and he works his way up, and he hears the process of his skin. Uh, Khaybar, and of course Khaybar, remember, was on the way to Medina for him, he's coming up, so Khaybar's on his way, so he diverts from Medina, he goes to Khaybar, and therefore, both the Habashi Muslims, and the Dawsi, there was a small group, two, three of the Dawsi, and, and Abu Huraira was the most famous of them, they both arrived in Khaybar, after Khaybar had been conquered. And as for the Muslims from Abyssinia, the Prophet ﷺ gave them a share of the booty. As for the people from Dos, he asked permission from the Sahaba, that would you mind if they also take a share? And they all agreed. So Abu Hurairah got the honor of getting a fortune from Khaybar without actually lifting a finger. He got his share of the booty, even though he didn't actually fight in this uh, battle. And from then on, Abu Hurairah is a constant part of the seerah. So you can put this down as well, that the Battle of Khaybar was when the time when Abu Hurairah basically became a Sahabi and he joined the Muslims of uh, Medina. Another interesting narration from, the, uh, from this incident of Khaybar, which took place sometime in between, but we don't know exactly when, and it's not related to the battle, so I delayed it to the end, is that a group of women participated in the Battle of Khaybar as well. And these women from the Ansar, they volunteered uh, in an expedition uh, to come along with the Prophet and they said, Ya Rasulullah, we want to come with you in order to help the wounded, treat the sick, and also just do any other work, you know, water, whatever needs to be done, we want to help out in the background. And so the Prophet allowed them to come. And this shows us that even though the general rule, he never took women in a battle. But because Khaybar was so clearly a victory, because Khaybar, but there was no, uh, you know, problem or concern that any, any issue would happen, because of this, 
the Prophet allowed the women to come to uh, the battlefield, and so a number of them, we don't know exactly how many, a number of them came, and a very interesting story, which uh, many people find very strange, but it shows us that Islam is not that strict, uh, that uh, the youngest girl amongst them, probably, you know, eight, seven years old or something, uh, she did not have a right. And so the Prophet on the way to Khaybah, so he doesn't have anybody else, Safiya is going to be on the way back. On the way to Khaybah, he tells this young girl, come and ride with me. So she sits on the, uh, the, the luggage, the, the, there's luggage that you have on the camel, so the Prophet is sitting here, and then there's a luggage behind him, so she's sitting on the luggage, uh, and she's going along with the Prophet This young girl, we don't even know her name, her name is not even mentioned, she just tells her story, and she, it just says a lady from uh, the tribe of such and such, from the Ansar. And she says that when the camel stopped and... Uh, the Prophet told me to get off, I saw that I had blood. And this was my first cycle. And I became terrified, as all girls do when the first time they get their cycle, and I said, I, or she said, I stayed on the camel and I didn't move. Even though the Prophet was saying, come on down, like we're here now. She didn't know what to do. She's terrified, she's embarrassed, she's ashamed, and what a place and what a location to get your first, and all the sisters who have your horror stories your first time, imagine this girl's horror story for as long as she lived, right? Think about that, okay? Where, at what time, behind whom? SubhanAllah, think about that. So, she's terrified, petrified. She doesn't know what to do. So the Prophet said, come down, and she didn't. And when she didn't, the Prophet looked, and he could see the traces of blood on the saddle, the luggage, and whatnot. So she said, he said, which is, perhaps you are having your cycle. And she just nodded yes. So he said, okay, don't worry, go and cleanse yourself and make your matter firm. Meaning, yani wear whatever you need to wear, like make it appropriate. And then come with some water and salt and wash this blood from the saddle and then get back where you were sitting. So subhanAllah, the Prophet calmed her down in such a, uh, a gentlemanly manner that, look, don't worry about it. It's no big deal. Cleanse yourself. Get yourself ready the way you need to, and then come back and wash the stain off properly because this is not just stain, you need to wash it off. Wash it off with water and salt, and then sit back where you were sitting. No irritation, no anger, no nothing. SubhanAllah. And so uh, she did as she was told, and she would tell later on, she would say that my my participation in the Battle of Khaybar, the Prophet gifted me, us women, he gifted us some gift. We didn't get a share because they didn't, there was no battle. We got a gift. And the gift that I got was this necklace. She, was, she would wear a necklace for as long as she lived. She said, the Prophet gave this to me and he was the one who put it on around my neck as the gift for helping the, the, the sick people and whatnot. So I will never part with this as long as I live. And when I die, it's going to be buried with me. Oh. That's what she said. That she wants to be buried with this necklace. And uh, she uh, basically, that was her wasiyah that when she died, she wanted the necklace to be buried. And this shows us that, uh, subhanAllah, Yani, this girl is what's, in those days, they probably began around 7, 8 or something, right? So this young girl, the Prophet put her on the saddle. And it shows us that in these types of situations and scenarios, if there is no danger or fear, and that's the big if, 
these days I would not want to put this around any map. But I'm saying, if there is no danger of shahwa, of lust, of any type of fitna like this, it's not a problem for a man to have a young girl on the camel. And, and they're in public, everybody's seeing there's nothing there. There's no haraj at all in this regard. And what we really see here is how the process and handled a very awkward situation where she was the one that was feeling now comforted at the Prophet wasallam. Uh, the Battle of Khaybar also saw a number of uh, fifth points revealed, so we'll just go over them uh, quickly. Of them, as per Sahih al-Bukhari's hadith, and there's a bit of a controversy when this took place. Sahih Muslim's hadith says it took place in the Battle of uh, the Treaty of Hudaybiyah, but there's a hadith in Bukhari that says this very same thing, which we already mentioned, took place in Khaybar. So we don't know. What is this thing? The prohibition of eating uh, donkey meat. Now, we mentioned in Hudaybiyah there's a hadith, and there is an authentic hadith. That the prohibition was in Hudaybiyah. There's another hadith that says Khaybar. No doubt this is human nature. Sahaba are somewhat confused in this regard. Either Khaybar or Hudaybiyah. Uh, also, we have other uh, other prohibitions as well that came down in the treaty uh, in the incident of Hudaybiyah. Uh, of them is the prohibition uh, that when you have a concubine, a jawadi, a jariya, that you are not allowed to uh, be with her until she goes through her cycle. That the idda takes place. And this was the first time that this ruling had come down. And so they, they cannot be touched until the idda takes place and then they become lawful. Also, at this time, for the first time, uh, Zawaj Mut'ah was made haram. Now, Zawaj Mut'ah, do we all know Zawaj Mut'ah or do I need to explain Zawaj Mut'ah? No, we don't know. So Zawaj Mut'ah is Zawaj where a time clause is put. Zawaj where a time clause is put, right? So, Uzawajuki, uh, I shall marry you, Uzawajuki, Usbur, Shahar, one month, one week, something like this, right? This was a Zawaj that was allowed in the old days and uh, in pre Islam and in early Islam. Then it became prohibited in the Battle of Khaybar. Now, there's a bit of a controversy. Uh, and it seems that Allah knows best that it was prohibited and then allowed and then prohibited and then allowed. So it actually went back and forth and back and forth and then it was prohibited. So there was a bit of a confusion in early Islam, is it still prohibited or not? And some said it is prohibited, sorry, the majority said it is prohibited and a very small minority said that uh, it is uh, allowed. And then, as you know, this is the difference between Sunni and non-Sunni groups as well. The four madhahib of the Sunnis have all agreed that it is completely prohibited. And the other school said that it is allowed. Also, in the Battle of Khaybar, uh, a number of prohibitions were revealed. Of them is something called the interest of commodity. Riba al-Fadl. Riba is of two types. Interest is of two types. And both are forbidden in Islam. The first interest is the interest where you purchase time for money, basically. Right? So, uh, somebody says, I'll give you $1,000 for a month if you give me back $1,100. Right? So, you're purchasing time for money. That's the common type of interest. It's the interest that we're all familiar with. There's another type of interest that the Sharia also forbids. And that is riba al-fadl. The first type is called riba al-nasi'ah, by the way. You should know these are two basic types of riba. This is riba al-fadl. Riba al-fadl is a little bit more complicated. And... Uh, not the time to get into all of the details here, but in a nutshell, specific commodities, there's only a list of commodities. Of them is uh, wheat and grain and dates. So specific commodities are not allowed to be bartered except in the same amounts. Now where does this hadith come from? So the Prophet remember Khaybar is a land producing dates. 
So a person brought him a big bag of dates, and these dates were of a quality that is mentioned, the name is mentioned, I forgot it now the name, but it's like a very luscious, fine quality date. And he brought him this. So the Prophet is impressed, he said, are all of the dates of Khaybar like this? Like this is the best quality date. Are all of the dates of Khaybar like this? So he said, no, Ya Rasulullah, this date is such and such. We purchase one, now he said saw, like one kilogram, one kilo or one pound. One pound, it's more than a, or less than a pound, for three pounds of normal dates, the other dates. This date, which is the luxury date, we purchase it for three times its equivalent in the normal dates. Okay, so the Prophet said, do not do this. Rather, sell the larger quantity of dates, the three pounds, get the money, and then use the money to purchase the good quality dates, right? Now, why and how this is a bit of an advance, it's not the fiqh of riba class here, but you should know that there are a number of specific commodities, and these commodities are staple food items, and they're also uh, monetary, by the way. So, uh, currencies, for example, come under this, right? You cannot exchange dollars except in the same amount, right? You cannot exchange $10 for $20 as a transaction, you cannot do this because this comes out of riba al-fadl. Okay, you have to do the same amount. If I give you ten coins, you give me ten dollar bills, for example. Right? That's you cannot exchange more for less. You're going to charge somebody uh, for breaking, for example. Right? That's technically not allowed. Okay. Now we're not saying that you buy something for ten dollars, you give twenty, it gives you ten back. This is not that you're buying. You're buying. We're talking about exchanging money for money. This is riba al-fadl or exchanging dates for dates, or salt for salt, or wheat for wheat. If you exchange, it has to be the same quantity. $10 for $10. 10 pounds, no. If it's dollars versus euros or something else, dollars versus Canadian something else, we're talking about the same currency, it has to be the same amount. Obviously, if you were to do this, then take your take your uh, uh, Syrian, uh, what is it, Riyaz? What is Syrian? Huh? Lira. Syrian Lira and Khalas, yeah. I have 100 Lira here, I want the $100. So it doesn't work that way, no. It's only in the same uh, currency. And the final thing that we'll mention, that we have some guests that we want to hand over to. Uh, some very honored and welcome guests, thank you for coming by. Uh, the final point that we want to mention is, the, the Treaty of Khaybar uh, allowed one more business transaction, which is a very, very important business transaction. And uh, the fancy term for it is Al-Muzara'a. Al-Muzara'a, and it's also known as uh, Sharika or, or, uh, or a partnership. Now, what is Muzara'a? Muzara'a means, as the process did with the people of Khaybar, that you take charge of the land, of watering, of irrigation, of all of the, you know, labor, and you'll give 50%, right? So this is a business partnership where the partners don't have to do the same things, the both of them. And this was not known in Medina. The people of Medina didn't do this. The people of Medina, if they owned the land, they would plow the land, irrigate the land. The concept of, okay, I have 10 acres, I don't have the energy to do it. Let's see if I can rent it for a percentage of the produce of the land. That's what it is, right? You're, you're going to say, so for example, you have uh, 10 acres of land that you don't have the time or energy or whatever to actually farm yourself. This is the Islamic transaction that says, you are a farmer, I'm the businessman, or I'm the landowner. The farmer comes to me, or I come to the farmer, either way, it doesn't matter, and I say, look, these are 10 acres, 
if you farm them, and you plant the seeds, and you take charge of the manual labor, now who owns the land? I do. You don't have the farm. You don't have the land. Then we will split it, you know, 30, 70, or however the percentage we agree. 50, 50, 60, 40, right? This is called muzara. And this is allowed in Islam. And this is a business partnership. Now again, Islam forbids interest, but it encourages partnership. You want to do a business, you don't go to get a loan from the bank, because the bank is going to benefit whether you win or lose. You want a business, you go to somebody who actually believes in your business. And somebody who's willing to share your risk of profit and loss. That's the point here, right? The business investor doesn't have to, they can be a silent business partner. Here's the capital, here's the check. You do the, the, the business side, right? And we'll split the cost, the profits, whatever you agree, 50-50, 30-70, whatever you two agree. That's between the two of you. Now, what happens? The one who gave you the check, he's not going to profit unless you profit, right? There's no guaranteed profit. And therefore, there is a bit of a risk involved. And in Islam, you cannot have this type of guaranteed profit that interest brings. Because interest, the rich benefit from the poor, regardless of how poor the poor are, regardless of any act of God, of any misfortune, the rich benefit merely because they have idle money lying around in the bank. And the Sharia does not allow this. Islamic law does not allow this. You want to benefit your money, you find somebody that you trust, that you're interested in this business project, and you share the risk of profit and the risk of loss. And when you do this, then you won't have the, uh, the, the type of false dichotomy or this type of, uh, of um, extreme capitalism that exists in some lands where one of them, where what is it, the top 1% own, uh, I forgot the statistics, the top 1% own like 60% of, of the rest of us or something. In fact, I remember was, there was one article that said the richest 400 people in America, 400, not even 1%, the richest 400 people earn and control as much as 65% of the rest of the population. And that's just mind-boggling. Really, it is. 400 people, 400, you could fit them in our masjid. Right? Controlling a immense... Now, frankly, we're being a little bit romantic and idealistic, but our system would not allow for this. It wouldn't. You wouldn't be able to get that type of accrued wealth. Because you'd have to risk your money every time you invested in somebody, right? You'd have to also want to, you know, uh, be sure of that. And if it's a loss, it's a loss for you as well. You can't take him to court and say, give me no, you're a business partner. So, if you profit, you will also share the rest. This is called uh, a sharikat. And one version of sharikat is land sharikat, which is muzara'a, which is you, you share the profit and the, the loss of the, uh, of the produce of the land. And with this, we conclude the uh, incident of uh, Khaybar. And inshallah, next week, we'll talk about the letters of the Prophet that he sent to uh, Rome, to uh, the Sassanid Empire, to Heraclius uh, and the Caesar, and the, the letters to the rulers of Bahrain. We'll talk about some of uh, that next week.